today we begin this new series called I Love My Church. And let me just start it by saying, I love my church. And I hope that as I said that, maybe something within you, um, I know we're, we're not usually a real amen, hallelujah kind of church. Um, <laughs> um, most of that I hope is happening at least on the inside. Um, but I hope that when I said, I love my church, that there was something inside of you that was saying, oh, me too. That within you, you were thinking, yes, amen, hallelujah. And so um, to begin, I, I just want us to together, we're, we're going to say that together. Okay, so um, let's, let's say that. I love my church. Thanks for not leaving me hanging. Um, I, that would have been really awkward if I was the only one saying that. So um, I appreciate that I'm not alone in that. We've, we've been here um, since 2012, and we have loved being a part of this particular church. Not to mention the, the bigger, capital C, universal, everybody who's a Christian church, but especially this particular group of people. I love my church. And so it's exciting to get to begin this series and to be, get to begin it with something that is near and dear to my heart, which is worship. And um, there's, there's much to say about worship that won't fit into the time we have today. Um, and it, it didn't fit all into the Core 52 book, although the chapter was quite good. In fact, um, I would say that uh, Mark Moore covered the, the technical side of what worship is fairly well. And in covering it, he he um, shared our, our verse, our theme verse for this week from the chapter, that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So he covered kind of the, the Greek words and some of what that means. And if you haven't, if you don't have a Core 52 book, um, you can go to 9thstreetcc.com slash Core 52, and um, you can um, request to purchase one there. They're only 10 bucks. They're not real expensive, but they'll help, um, help grow your faith during, uh, during this time. And if you're worried about being behind, you're not really because um, each week is kind of a standalone thing. And so I would encourage you to engage with that, with that material. Uh, and I'm not going to repeat what Mark Moore said in the book. because, Like I said, I think he covered it pretty well. What worship is. And I, I, could, I could say more, but I'd rather spend our time this morning in a different direction. I asked a question on Facebook this week. What are some songs of worship that have deeply impacted your faith? And if you didn't respond to my post, or even if you did, I'd, I would encourage you to think about that right now. What are some songs of worship that have deeply impacted your faith? Now, when I, when I asked it on Facebook, I, I got something that I kind of expected, which was a wide range of songs. Um, songs that predate everyone in this room. Songs that... Um, have been written in the last year, a, a wide, and everywhere in between, really, a wide range of music. What I didn't expect was for the wide range of music to be present in many of the posts themselves. And the fact that for many, um, there have been songs throughout their life, whether that be a song that was new when they were young or a song that was new last week, or a song that was written by someone who died before they were born. That, that there's a wide span there. But we have, we have this connection to music, don't we? Music is something that, that connects with us in a very special way. Uh, I like to put it this way, that music connects the head and the heart. 
I'm sure I heard that from someone else. I'm sure I didn't make that up. I don't know who it was, but, but music does. It connects our head and our heart. That's why we have to be aware of what we're listening to when we listen to music that doesn't share our worldview. You have to be aware of what you're listening to because music is going to connect those words to your heart. Guard your heart, as the writer of Proverbs would say. And so, but music connects with us at a deep level, which is why people have really strong opinions about music. I remember car rides as a family, um, where there were disagreements over what was considered good music. Maybe those conversations have happened in your car or in your household, where there's just a difference of opinion when it comes to music. And people's opinions on music tend to be quite strong. Consequently, it makes me very thankful that this morning, as I share with you from God's Word, we're going to be talking about this much about music. We're talking about worship. Now, the songs we sing, the music we engage in here, is worship. But like Tyler was saying earlier, it's, it's a pretty small piece of it. And this morning, we are going to be in the book of Amos. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open up to the book of Amos. Uh, if you are using a device of some kind um, where you could pick up whatever version you want, uh, the English Standard Version is the one I'm going to be using. So if you want to pull that up on your phone, ESV is the one I'm using. Um, or you might want to check it with a different one. Sometimes if I know someone's using one translation, I'll use a different one just to see kind of the, the nuance of some of those differences. But we're going to be in the book of Amos this morning as we, as we look at as we look at worship from maybe a little bit different, um, a little bit different perspective than what we might normally. See, worship is such a wide, covers such a wide range. And so uh, even this morning, as we look at maybe the heart behind this, um, I would encourage you, if you have questions that are left lingering, because I'm not going to cover the whole topic, and neither did Mark Moore in the three or four pages, uh, I'd encourage you to Send him some questions, ninthstreetcc.com slash questions, and you can submit questions for us to do a uh, question and response time. That's for any week, every week. Um, we've got that going during this Core 52 study. Uh, but we're going to be getting into Amos, and we're going to be starting in chapter 1, verse 1, where it says this, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, King of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So, if you were to um, if you were to find an old piece of mail that was written to someone else from someone else, you might need to first realize: okay, who's who's sending the letter? Who's receiving the letter? When are they receiving it? You kind of need some of those contextual things. Because a letter written to a soldier during Vietnam will read very differently than a letter written to a soldier in World War I. That some of those things are going to just simply be different. And so, in this opening verse of the book of Amos, we find out Amos is a shepherd. Later on in the, in the book, we find out he also is a farmer of figs. So he had livestock and was a farmer, which means... He probably would have fit in with us, right? Um, there's a lot of people who have livestock and farm around here. And so he would have fit in well here, probably. 
He was not a prophet by trade, though, and that's an important distinction because there were many people in that day who were prophets. That was what they did. But Amos is not one of them, but he certainly received a calling from God. We find out that the timing of his book is around the same time and a little bit before the time of Isaiah. Because here it, he says that um, he saw these things concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the beginning of um, one of the most famous, one of the more famous passages in Isaiah, where Isaiah receives his calling, he sees, this, he sees the heavenly throne room, and he responds to God's call to say, Here am I, Lord, send me. That, Isaiah chapter 6, begins with, In the year King Uzziah died. That's when he receives this vision. So this happens just before the book of Isaiah is written. He receives his vision here. He receives his message. Um, one other thing that I would point out is that um, the place where Amos is from is in the, um, the nation of Judah. So um, much like ours, our, our nation had a civil war in the 1860s. Okay? And um, during that time, had things gone differently, we would have two separate nations. We'd have the Confederate states and the Union states, right? We'd have, we'd have two separate nations. We have the ones in the north, the ones in the south. And that's, that's kind of what happened in, in the Bible. So um, we had King Saul, King David, and King Solomon who were over the kingdom while it was united. And then King Solomon's son, which he's a sermon for another time, but he was a jerk. Okay, and so King Solomon's son is awful, and so the kingdom splits. It splits in two, and the northern tribes become Israel, and the southern tribes become Judah, which especially when you're diving into the prophets, it's important to recognize that these are two different groups of people at this point. And Amos is from Judah, but his message is for Israel. The prophets already were a difficult bunch. They had a hard lot in life because their messages were never fun. And then he was also preaching to a group of people that already hated him. As we, as we get in here, um, I just, I just want to say this. Um, if you knew that this morning was going to be worship, if you've been following along in our Core 52 stuff, you may have been excited for a really encouraging and really uplifting, happy message about music and songs and how we praise God, yay, and celebrating and that kind of thing. And um, certainly some of that is true. Um, but that's not where we're going to be today. It, it's hard to preach the prophets and try to have a message like that because the reality is the prophets, God didn't call a prophet and send a prophet to go say, hey, I just want to tell you, you're, you guys are doing great. You guys are just doing great, doing a wonderful job. No, you read in the prophets, and there's harsh language used. They're straightforward. They don't pull any punches. There's, there's condemnation. There is judgment. And so um, the, the tone of this message may be similar to that. And truthfully, if I'm going to be honest with the way I handle the text, it probably needs to be like that. But on the outset, I want to say that, that in, in the things that we're going to talk about this morning, I see people in our church doing really well. I'm sure there are people that aren't. But there are people in this church that are doing a, a very good job 
in the areas that we're going to talk about this morning. And so even as Amos pronounces strong judgment from the Lord on Israel, I hope that one, wherever you are, you take that to heart. That even if you are doing pretty good, that you, you still receive that and recognize the seriousness of that. Um, I'd, it's honestly been a, a hard one to prepare. Um, not because it was hard to find what to say, but there's really not a way to soften it. <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's straightforward. And so as we dive into this, I, I would encourage you with that. I would also encourage you that if if this is something where you feel um, judged or condemned, then let that feeling sit. Because that's exactly what Amos is doing to the Israelites. And if you're receiving that message and feeling it like that, you probably need to respond better than the Israelites did. Because they didn't respond well. And they were taken away by the Assyrians, never to be heard of again. And so I would just encourage you to sit with this message however it lands. Don't try to push it away. Don't try to disregard it or explain why it's different for you, but just let it sit. Let it mess with you a little bit. That's certainly what it's been doing to me this week. So the, the book begins by God first condemn, condemning foreign nations. So he, he kind of walks through their sins with this formula of, um, I'll use the first one as an example with, with, God, with uh, Damascus here. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And it's the same kind of formula that he uses with, um, with Gaza and Tyre. So this is the Arameans, the Philistines, the Phoenicians. Okay, so he uses this formula for three transgressions and for four. But if you look at it, and you look through, we don't have time to go through all of this, but if you look at it, there's not three or four transgressions for any of them. In fact, he continues on with Edom, which brings it a little closer to home, because Edom is what the people uh, were called that were the descendants of Esau, who's Jacob's brother. Jacob, who was also called Israel. Edom receives his message. Ammon and Moab who were the descendants of Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. So now we're getting into the family here, and things are starting to get closer. And yet I, I have this suspicion that, that the Israelites still didn't really, they still didn't really get it. Uh, maybe if you're a teacher, or if you just deal with kids, maybe your own kids, um, sometimes uh, when, when a kid who is really causing the trouble when they see someone else getting in trouble instead of them, there's kind of this smugness, right? Where it's like, you're getting in trouble, I'm not. <laughs> there's this kind of smugness about it. And probably, if we're honest, there's maybe some of that with us, as, even as adults. Um, but but I, I see, you see that with kids a lot. And then it's like, of course, that smugness immediately goes away because then you turn to them and you share, oh, no, no, you're not off the hook. And I kind of envision that being the case with, with Israel. Because after he does the Edomites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites, then he gets to Judah. 
And even when we get to their closest neighbor and closest relatives, the ones that they share blood with, we still haven't gotten our three or four transgressions. Which means there's only one more left to go. And that's Israel. And the words of the Lord through Amos, oh, just tear into Israel about all the horrible things they're doing. But they get four. They get the full four, which means their judgment is ready. Their punishment is about to happen. Okay, so I hope maybe you're asking yourself at this point, okay, this is all fine and all, but like, what does this have to do with worship? <laughs> like, what does this actually have anything to do with, with worship? And I would answer that question with this. Everything. The message of the book of Amos has everything to do with worship because Israel's problem was a worship problem. You have, you've maybe heard it said, and we've even said it today, that worship is more than just the singing, um, but you may have also heard it said, worship is a lifestyle. Worship is a lifestyle. It's a, it's a way of life. And for a long time, um, to be honest, my response to that was, okay, what does that even mean, right? <laughs> what does it even mean that worship is a lifestyle? Like, that seems really weird. Uh, when, when worship literally just means to, to declare the worth of someone or something. So what, what does that mean that worship is a lifestyle? And yet that's exactly what we're going to see is Israel's problem. In Amos chapter 5, starting with verse 21, it says this, I hate, I despise your feasts. Now, as we walk through this section here, um, I just want us to kind of imagine Imagine the conversation that might have been going on. I doubt they were conversing with Amos as he's saying this, but, but I, I do think that probably internally there was this conversation going as they were hearing these words. I hate, I despise your feasts. What do you mean you hate our feasts? You told us to do these feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, but we're assembling in your name. We're, we're getting together to, to worship you, even, even though... You offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not even look upon. What do you mean? Those things are expensive. Don't you know how much that cost me? I'm giving you these gifts. What more do you want? Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But you asked for them, God. These are the things you asked from us. What do you mean you don't want any of it? And if, if that were the conversation going on in their minds, they'd be right. These are the things God told them to do in Leviticus. This is the way God told them to worship. And so if their problem is a worship problem, then the question is, what, what's the problem? Isn't, isn't doing what God said, isn't that enough? Isn't it enough to go to the place and to do the things? Isn't it enough? Like, I, I get out of bed on Sunday morning. You know, I'm a, that's a sacrifice, God, don't you know? 
Isn't it enough to go to the place and do the things? God, I'm not a singer and I sing the songs. Which I appreciate, by the way. Isn't it enough to go and check the boxes? And it seems the answer that Amos is trying to get across to the people of Israel is not even close. Because their worship problem had nothing to do with the activity that they were doing in their assemblies. And it had everything to do with what they were doing when it wasn't a Sabbath or a feast time. It had nothing to do with their assemblies. The first problem that they had that we see throughout the book, we won't read all of the places where this gets pointed out, but the first problem we see is that they were abusing the poor and they were perverting justice. Amos chapter 5 verses 10 and 10 through 12 say, They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. If you're familiar with the story of Ruth, uh, Ruth was a woman who had been widowed. Her husband had died and she chose to stay with her, uh, with her mother-in-law. As she did, she came across this man named Boaz, who, who they were related to. And so Boaz desired to, um, to redeem her. That's a practice we don't have all the time to go into today, um, but basically to redeem her and her family, because um, widows were kind of left alone and very vulnerable in that time. Okay, and so, but he found out that there was someone who was a nearer relative. So the, the, the job of redeeming someone in this situation went to the nearest relative. And so Boaz had to go and conduct official business to ask this relative that was closer than he was and to ask him if he was going to redeem Ruth and the family land and all of that. And that took place at the gate. That's where business happened. That's where uh, official things were decided upon and where these conversations Happened. And so we see here that um, the Israelites says they hate him who reproves in the gate. Someone who brings good correction. Who's trying to direct things in a God-honoring and correct way. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Whew. You would think that at a place like the gate, truth would be a high value. And yet... Truth was a hated thing because truth kept me from getting what I want. Truth kept, kept people from being able to take advantage of others. At the end of verse 12, he points out, You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. That good people are being treated badly. People who are supposed to be in positions of leadership and power are taking bribes and not taking care of 
those who are vulnerable and in need. Chapter 8, verses 4 through 6 say, Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat. Basically, I hope church gets over soon so I can go be a crook. I hope we can get out of here so that I can go back to, you know, making some money, right? And no one's, no one was probably saying those words, but those were their actions. They were ready for the festivals and the Sabbaths to be over so they could go back because they, they got this business deal going where we can make a lot of money. Well, unless the IRS finds out because it's kind of like not really on the up and up, but you know, hey, whatever, it's fine. You know. That they were, that they were being crooks. They were being deceitful with false balances. Now that's a weird thing because we don't really, we don't do money that way with um, weighing our money. Uh, but that's how, that's how they would do things. And in fact, even though this, Amos is, is um, speaking to a group of people who were kind of at the end of their time as a nation. Israel was going to be um, taken away rather soon after this. All the way back in Deuteronomy, at the beginning of them as a nation, it's written this in 25 verses 13 to 16. It says, You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have. A full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. That when you are dealing dishonestly, you're an abomination to the Lord your God. You see, that's what they were saying when they were, when they were saying dealing deceitfully with false balances. It's this idea that, um, yeah, if I'm...
and those kind of things. But they, they were forgetting who exactly it was that they were dealing with. In chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, it says, Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into morning and darkness and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Literally, Yahweh is his name. It's not just when you, when you see the Lord in, in all caps like that in your Bible. That's what I mean. It's the proper name of God. It's like, um, it's like when, you, when you want to describe a parent, you know, you, you might tell us, oh, my dad, my daddy, my father. But then you say their actual name, and it's, it's different. Because there, there, there are lots of different people that might go by the same title. And, and nowadays, we have lots of people who have the same name. But in that day, there's one Yahweh. There was only one so there were many gods, there were many lords, but he is the one and only. Chapter 9, verses 5 through 6, said, Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds up builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the deep. Yahweh is his name. They're pointing out the majesty of who, who this God is. This God didn't just put one star up in the heavens. He made constellations, for goodness sake. He turns... The darkness to morning, the morning to darkness. He, he's not just the God over the sun, over the, over the moon. He's not just the God over the waters or over the earth. He is God over all things, over everything. This is your God. This is the Lord. And this is the God that you were dishonoring in your worship. See, these, these problems are worship problems because they go all the way to the heart of a person. Mark, Moy, Mark Moore pointed out in our, um, in our reading this week, worship is the expression of the Spirit. Meaning worship is what, is what comes out of your inner self. And the true expression of their spirit or what they, was what they were doing the other six days of the week. There's, there's a guy that we like to um, kind of uh, listen to and, um, and just kind of discuss his views on things uh, around the church. Um, his name's Brady Shearer. Uh, he has a company called Pro Church Tools, and they put out videos to talk about um, how we maximize um, digital things for the church and one of the things that he talks about over and over again is this idea of maximizing the 167. So he says there are 168 hours in your week. 
And his whole thing is about helping churches to maximize the hours where someone isn't here. And I would assert to you this morning that our worship, true worship, happens a lot more in the 167 than it does in the 1. The time you spend in here is, I think, very valuable. I think it's important for people to be able to, to engage um, together with God's word and in song. I wouldn't be doing what I do if I didn't think that. But that's one 168th of your week. That's it. You know, maybe a little more than that if you, if you come early and stick around and talk to people for a little while. So maybe it's a little more than that. But for, for many, it's 1, 168th, um, which um, I, believe, I believe the percentage of that is 0.6%. I think that's what Michael Wyatt told me after first service. So I wasn't going to be able to do that math without a calculator. Um, and so there's a, there's a sense in which what we do the rest of the week means a lot more about our worship than the one hour that we might spend here. Or depending on how long the person preaches, maybe it's a little more than that too. But God tells us what he wants. On the heels of that, of that section where God's saying, I don't want your songs, the melody of your harps I will not listen to, the very next thing he says is, but let justice Roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He tells us what he wants. He doesn't just want empty ritual. And it wasn't even that God didn't want those things. Again, he commanded those things. But what God really wants is justice and righteousness. Those are the things that God wants to be the overflow of your heart. It's not just here. Jesus, Jesus says the same thing when he's asked, asked, what is the greatest commandment? He responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two things. And here we are, reading one of the prophets, and what do you know? Justice and righteousness. Justice. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's really that simple. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is justice. The funny thing in it is that when Jesus is asked this, then they respond, well, who is my neighbor? And he tells a story about a person that a Jew would have hated as much as anybody. A Samaritan. And at the end of the story, the Samaritan is the one who is the neighbor. Who is your neighbor? I've seen things kind of float around uh, on, on Facebook and other social media places uh, regarding just that question. Who is your neighbor? And it just usually says something like this. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor white neighbor, love your black neighbor, love your Muslim neighbor, love your atheist neighbor, 
Love your Christian neighbor. Love your unkind neighbor. Love your neighbor. But it doesn't matter who it is. Everyone falls into this category of us loving. There's no one that doesn't count in that. And, and maybe to put it in terms that fit our, our, current, um, our current cultural atmosphere right now, if Donald Trump and Barack Obama were your two next-door neighbors, guess which one you're called to love? Both. Which is hard. It's really hard to love your neighbor sometimes. Because sometimes your neighbor isn't very lovable. Sometimes they, they say and do things that you don't like. And you still have to love them anyway. You're still called to love your neighbor. On the topic of justice, I think I would... Um, I'd be missing something important if I didn't say something about um, the events that occurred this week um, with, with a man being um, murdered in the street. Um, part of what makes it so painful is that I know people that share the profession of the one that did the killing. And they're the ones I know are good, honest, God-honoring, hardworking men who want to protect and serve. But the more that I've, I've seen people um, share things on, on social media and other places, um, I, I've seen something shared that um, just breaks my heart, that, that these things aren't just now happening, they're just now being filmed. And I, I don't know what else to even say, except that we as Christians need to do our part to love our neighbors. And that often looks like looking out for those who are vulnerable, who are in positions where they could be taken advantage of. I don't have any political answers for you, but I can give you the personal one. Love your neighbor. Seek justice. Righteousness. Righteousness is, is this idea of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Uh, that's, that's the picture of righteousness that we have in the Bible. It's about right living. It's about living in the way that God would have you to live. Behaving as though the one that you sing and declare is Lord, it's living as though that's actually true. That Jesus is Lord, so consequently, I need to do what he wants, even if that disagrees with what I want. And I would... I would encourage you to do a little more looking if what Jesus wants is always the exact same thing as what you want. That true righteousness is about discovering God's heart and pursuing whatever it is that that heart would have you to do. Our hearts are sinful and deceitful and want to lead us away from that righteousness. So it's important that we seek to discover more and more deeply the heart of God. Jesus cared deeply for these two things. 
justice, and righteousness. He cared for those who were down and out and who were vulnerable. And he called out those who were in positions to be able to take advantage of those people. We have very, very little about Jesus singing. We can infer it by the fact that he showed up to the synagogue. That was his practice, his custom. He did it all the time. That was his, his practice. He was in the habit of being in the synagogue. So we can infer it from that. We know that they, before he went off to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would be betrayed, um, when they left the Passover feast, they sang a hymn together. So we can infer that Jesus did a little bit of singing in his life. But we have a whole lot about the way he cared for others and displayed God's heart and the way that he lived and the way that he sought God's will above his own. We have very little about the music of God's people in Scripture, what it sounded like. We know some of the instruments they used in the Old Testament, but otherwise, we don't know a whole lot about that. But we have a ton about the kind of love that he has always called his people to. And so, this morning, this is a different kind of worship sermon than probably what you were expecting. Honestly, it was a different sermon than I was expecting to preach. The one I described about being really uplifting and talking about praise and thanksgiving, and that was kind of the sermon that I had expected to preach this morning when I first looked at this topic of worship. And yet, that wasn't the sermon that needed to be preached. Because what really matters in our worship is answering this question, is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus your Lord? Is it showing outside of our assemblies, or do you just simply show up and sing about Jesus being Lord? If it's not showing up outside of here, then you may want to flip back and reread Amos 5, 21 to 23, because that will give you a pretty good clue as to what God thinks about what you're doing here. Which then would beg the question, if you're not making Jesus your Lord in the 167, why show up to the one? I'm not, I'm not trying to run anybody off. I like people being here, and I, I get that there's some value to people who, who Jesus isn't their Lord yet. Um, I think there's value to them being present in a, in a worship service. But if you're someone who's been a church person for a long time, whether it be this one or other churches, and Jesus isn't your Lord, why do you keep doing it? I can think of a dozen different things. If Jesus wasn't my Lord, I can think of a dozen different things I would be doing with my Sunday mornings. Is Jesus your Lord? Heart of worship leads to a life of surrender and service. And this will absolutely include participation in gatherings like this one. If it doesn't, then again, I would ask the question, is Jesus your Lord? But this is a really small part one 168th, you might say, of what it means to worship. Honestly, a good definition of worship might sound a lot like our church mission statement, to become faithfully committed followers 
of Jesus. So as we, as we kind of bring this message to a close, I would encourage you to seek out more and more and grow into more and more the lordship of Jesus in the 167. Because when you do that, all of a sudden, the one 168th that we do right here together becomes a whole lot more meaningful, a whole lot more fun. And in the most important aspect, it honors God in the way he wants to be honored, through justice and righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that, that we can honor you in worship. I thank you that we can declare your worth through song. I thank you that we can declare your worth not just when we gather together and sing songs, but God, we can declare your worth through the way that we live our lives and show that you are the one who is of most value. I thank you for that, Father. And I do thank you for this time where we together get to declare that you are Lord over all things. May we never forget in Jesus' name, amen.